This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Okay, welcome back. The last couple of weeks, we started off with conversation with Mako and then followed up with conversation of our own last week talking about atonement and specifically deconstructing penal substitution as a lens for thinking about Christianity. So where are we going this week, Nate? I think it'd be good to stop the penal substitution conversation for a little bit and maybe focus on some other ways of thinking about the atonement. And I think what's important about this is that it kind of changes everything. We talked about it being a lens last week, and it really is. This is the top of the stream, and we talk about that stream kind of trickles down into everything we think and almost how we view the world. And so we want to go back to the top of the stream and look at one of the most foundational, important things that we think about when we think about Christianity and Jesus, and that is what are we saved from and what are we saved to? That's sort of the... The, the base question, I think, here. I want to ask you, before we get into the other ways to think about this, when did you first start kind of like rethinking your view on atonement? And why did, I guess more importantly, why did you start to see that it was necessary to rethink it? What are like ramifications that you felt from the way you viewed atonement and the way you viewed the cross? What was that leading to that kind of made you want to rethink this? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Our stories are somewhat parallel and then uh, different in a, in a place as well. So you shared, I was reading Rene Girard a few years back, that just opened your mind to seeing that there were other ways of thinking about atonement. And that triggered kind of the, the collapse of, of penal substitution on the, on the altar. Uh, for me, I was troubled, maybe troubled's too strong a word. I didn't... I didn't have the experience that Mako did where I was mature enough to see just based on experience that penal substitution was problematic. I think I intuited a lot of that uh, in terms of doing ministry, how we could talk about God, all that sort of things. I was always self-critical. I'm a strong one on the Enneagram, so I'm always trying to reform and critique and improve the the world and myself and my thinking and all that. Um, so I was always trying to improve my way of thinking about Christianity and the atonement. And and specifically, I think the, the thing that kind of uh, maybe was the earliest seed of questioning was there seemed to be so much material in the New Testament and old that just wasn't being accounted for in penal substitution. I didn't really know how to account for it, but I just had this this feeling that uh, there were things we weren't talking about. There were ways that Paul was talking or things that Jesus was saying or uh, whole categories of thinking in the Old Testament that penal substitution just wasn't dealing with. So one of them early on was the fact that God offers forgiveness <laughs> from the very beginning of Israel's history, thousands of years before Jesus dies on the cross. So there was just this simple gap right there of, okay, if forgiveness is offered and all the cross accomplishes is forgiveness, then I don't understand what's going on here. That then quickly became like, wait a second, is God really loving if someone has to die before he's willing to forgive a single thing that they do? Like that's not, if my dad did that, like I, that, that is not a loving move as a dad or if that was how I treated Camden that I cannot forgive anything 
everything must be punished. Like that's not how a loving father treats his kids. So there was there was a a doubt, I guess, that was there. And then simply put, N.T. Wright took that doubt and and wedged a whole bunch of biblical theology into that crack until the whole thing just exploded. And I honestly think he's probably been the most influential evangelical friendly theologian of our generation. And I think thousands and thousands of people have gone through a version of that same N.T. Wright deconstruction. And I'm super, super thankful for it. I've come to disagree with N.T. Wright in parts and push back on some of his uh, thinking and maybe highlight other aspects that he doesn't highlight as much. But a lot of what he did was he, and if you guys aren't familiar, N.T. Wright was part of this kind of box called The New Perspective on Paul, which has been this sort of debate about essentially salvation in in the uh, New Testament and what does it actually mean to be saved. And, um, and essentially what N.T. Wright did was he, for me at least, framed so much of what Paul and Jesus and the other New Testament writers and, and characters were thinking about when they were talking about ideas like the righteousness of God or the justice of God or a return from exile to salvation. So specifically like putting the cross and Jesus's death into the context of Second Temple Judaism, uh, I think that's, you know, a decent way of summarizing what N.T. Wright has been trying to do. And it basically just made me see there's so much more there that penal substitution isn't touching on. And honestly, the stuff that he was talking about were things like, oh, like Israel was still in exile, considered themselves to be in this kind of existential exile. And so the Gospels are pointing out that Jesus is being framed as the new Moses to lead Israel out of exile, which is a form of liberation. Wow, that's really amazing. And and intriguing. It was not just the content, it was how he did it. And he write, re- reads the Bible in a much more beautiful way than the reformed theologians that I was trained on do. And so it's not simply reading Paul and saying, oh, Paul said this, so I have to think this. It was looking at literary motifs and uh, allusions to the Old Testament and the New Testament and the ways that the Bible uses story to communicate some of its most significant uh, ideas, not just, you know, Paul's kind of didactic letters. So basically, long story short, it was it was a little bit of doubt with N.T. Wright kind of blowing that up. And I've just kind of let that snowball for years. But really, the the largest piece of it was not first seeing that penal substitution was wrong. It was first seeing that penal substitution simply couldn't be the only way of looking at this. It didn't account for everything. It's a yeah, N.T. Wright has been huge for me as well. I remember one thing he said, even as you were talking about, wait, people were being forgiven in the old testament there's also the idea he introduces where like jesus was 30 plus years old when he died why didn't if he just needed blood to cover the the sin why didn't he just die when he was a baby it would have made everything a lot less complicated so let's put penal substitutionary atonement on the side for a second and let's think about other ways to think about the cross so what are some of the kind of prominent ones and what have you i guess been you mentioned more beautiful ways to think about this. 
we've talked about a little bit and we kind of heard Mako talk about medical atonement as God is the physician uh, and he's he's wrathful against the sin and corruption in the world that's in each of us. Um, and so it's this kind of healing process of eradicating that from creation and from us. Yeah, what are kind of other ways to think about the atonement? Yeah, I think for starters, we should just recognize, uh, I know we're trying to move past penal substitution in the critiques, but uh, because that's the lens that most of us have come to this through, I think we're going to have to keep um, undoing the lens at different points. So uh, one of the problems with not just the, the penal substitution approach or interpretation of the, the gospel, but in our world, in evangelicalism, the way that has been asserted as the singular gospel, the single way of interpreting it, as it's it's actually kind of desensitized us to how mixed and dynamic the New Testament discussion about the gospel and the crucifixion and resurrection was. There's a kind of analogy that's been used oftentimes that of a diamond. And, you know, a cut diamond has multiple sides to it. And depending on which way you're looking at it, it's refracting light off one of the different sides. And the idea is that there are a whole bunch of metaphors, or you could use the word motifs or uh, views, ways of making sense of what Christ accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, that they all belong together. They're all sides of a, of a whole diamond. And that's just different from the way most of us have, have been groomed to say, there's one way we have to understand it. There's one basic formula or equation. Get that formula down and then look at everything else through that formula. So we've talked about this a little bit. It's not even just that most proponents of penal substitution hold it in junction with you know, five or 10 other motifs for atonement. And we want to cut off that one side of penal substitution. Penal substitution has been presented to most of us as the lens that we're supposed to see everything else through. And so for starters, I think what Mako presented when he was talking about medical substitution is actually less a motif of atonement as it is trying to offer a more accurate lens more accurate to the scriptures and a more beautiful and life-giving lens through which we interpret the whole story. So he was suggesting we replace the primary metaphor from being a legal courtroom to being we are sick and plagued and God wants to heal us, right? So it's a transformation, healing, instead of guilt forgiveness model. Uh, so that that's the first is like, I think there's a lot of work we need to do to come at this with a new lens. So you're saying that he's not presenting one of those like facets of the diamond necessarily. He's saying, hey, here's, let's swap in a new kind of whole diamond and there's gonna be like different motifs in this, but it's just kind of a changing the whole way of viewing it first, coming at it from a better angle and then looking at the different motifs there. Yeah, I think that's close. Maybe uh, another way of framing it is, um, so if you have a, a bag of mixed metaphors, um, there's actually a good book from Scott McKnight on atonement theology called A Community Called Atonement. We'll put the link to the book in our show notes. He uses the metaphor of a bag of golf clubs. And he essentially says, like, each one of the metaphors that we find uh, in the scriptures for talking about what God did in Jesus, A, is it's a metaphor, any one of those things cannot be confused with the thing itself. It's simply a way of trying to get close to understanding what happened by means of a metaphor. 
what much of Protestant thinking does is it says, I'm only going to use my nine iron or whatever. And he, he's using the analogy to say, you can't play golf well if you refuse to use all of the clubs. So that's the first piece of saying there are multiple motifs and you can't just use one. But then the other thing that, that McKnight and others have argued for is that just the way we all think, we have to have one foundational central motif that that kind of operates as the hub. In other words, it's like it's actually impossible to hold 10 conflicting metaphors in your head at one time equally. You have to have one that's the dominant lens. And so for many, we've been told that penal substitution is the dominant lens, if if not the only lens we're allowed to use. And what Mako's doing is saying medical substitution isn't just another golf club in the bag. Medical substitution actually is a way of replacing that whole central lens through which we see all the other motifs. And I think that's a great starting place. Scott McKnight basically talks about his view. He he wants to put the kingdom of God and the creation of a new atonement community, the church, as the the hub and then see everything else kind of in light of that. Mako wants to see God's desire to heal and transform humanity as the hub through which everything else is seen. So it's kind of like he talked about, you know, the the overarching metaphor. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, forever, the primary thing that is perceived as the problem is death, and therefore all the ways that we think about the atonement are largely ways of dealing with that problem. It brings other things into it, but that's the hub of things. And so in our world, guilt has been established as the the primary hub through which we're supposed to interpret everything else, right? So basically, we want to look at a bunch of other motifs. We just want to say that interpreting it all in terms of how God's going to deal with guilt is probably a bad place to start. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, it works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Well, it's just very American. It's very Western. And again, this is one of the, my favorite things that Monko was talking about was shifting from a courtroom to something else. He wants to shift it to kind of the, the hospital, but definitely shifting away from the courtroom. We're definitely not talking about a courtroom. And then there's kind of some other, you're calling them hubs, to, to look at and examine. And then inside of each of those, there's some different views of what was actually accomplished. Is that right? I think that's close enough. Yeah. Can't just say it's right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's it's worth actually stating right now that it is very difficult to talk about atonement. Like, it's this has always been difficult. It's It was difficult for Paul to talk about what was happening uh, in and through Christ. It's very difficult today. Uh, it's for one reason, because this is like holy ground, right? Like, this is the center of Christianity. We're talking about, like, why is Christ worth worshiping, right? Like, what happened? Like, what is it that we foundationally believe? So if you make a bad mistake, 
right? <laughs> like it's it's pretty significant. It's really hard to talk about, but it's also just mind-numbingly complicated. Basically, if you know, the more and more I study the Bible, the more I realize how complex the thing is. The the literary ingenious involved, all the ways it's it's crafted to work together, and all of that complexity funnels into how the New Testament thinks about Jesus. I think there's this idea that if it's complicated, we need to be skeptical of it and it's potentially false and that the truth is supposed to be this simple, easy to understand, you know, this kind of idea of like basic reading of scripture. Anyone should just be able to pick this book written in English (laughs) to Americans up and understand what it's talking about. And you're kind of bringing something that sounds more complicated here. And you're saying like, I can't just instantly understand what Jesus did. And I think, so yeah, we push back against stuff that's complicated and kind of skeptical of it. Yeah, totally. That is the Western ways to try to boil it all down into a a set of bullet point lists. And, you know, Walter Brueggemann, a a biblical scholar, he had a line a while back, I can't remember which book it was in. He said that the, the biblical way of challenging idolatry is mixed metaphor. In other words, if you equate the real thing and something as transcendent, as God, if you equate that with a single metaphor, you always run the risk of reducing God to something far less than he is. And so the biblical view, and even just one way of of looking at this, is just look at all the ways that the Bible talks about God. All the metaphors used as a father or a husband or a shepherd, you know, all these different metaphors which bring different things to mind and connote different meanings— the primary way that the Bible goes about talking about sacred, complicated things is to just allow many reports to actually conflict with one another to basically create this conversation. So it's even runs all the way through the kind of literature we have in the Old Testament where you have the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles that we have that are conflicting reports of the same history placed in the same canon in the Old Testament, not as we've been trained to think that we have to eliminate all the contradictions and make a way to harmonize them so they all work out. That's the opposite of what they're there for. They're actually there to argue with one another. Uh, Pete Enns has done a lot of good work on this. By providing multiple perspectives, it actually prevents some of what we have been trained to seek to do in American Protestantism, which is to reduce the thing to something easily digestible. So even just look at the fact that we have four Gospels all telling different versions of the same story, all because each of the four gospel writers have slightly different theologies and understandings of what Jesus was doing. Can I just say also here that like, we mentioned a lot of names on the show, Pete Enns, N.T. Wright, others. I know that there's uh, a lot of people that are in that neo-reformed camp and they're like in their hardcore. And we talk about the Gospel Coalition, some of these groups. Part of what's frustrating is that they have pushed a lot of these people outside of the circle. And so when you hear their names, you think, wait, didn't I hear something about that guy being, you know, something or other? And so you naturally won't learn from these people if you're hardcore in that camp and i just got to say two people in that camp you will forever be in that camp and won't be able to hear anyone else outside of it if you only listen to voices in that camp because they will continually perpetuate that 
kind of cycle of only listening to voices inside this camp. They will do book reviews. They will do, you know, whatever to, to say, be careful, don't go there. And that's sort of what we talked about episode 16 last episode was them kind of being the gatekeepers for what it means to be saved and not be saved, what the gospel actually is. I would just say, don't neglect to study things because people in that specific group have said, hey, careful here. This is, you know, verging on maybe not even being Christian anymore. Yeah. And especially for those of us that come from kind of the evangelical Baptist Presbyterian reformed world, one of the wings of the church and theology that the the tribe of penal substitution folks has combated and fought against more than anyone is the black liberation theologians for decades, honestly, and groups like the Gospel Coalition devote so much energy to doing this is they position penal substitution and a gospel of forgiveness of guilt up against the gospel of liberation of the oppressed. And they call liberation theology essentially a a social justice liberal gospel that is reading the black agenda or the liberal agenda or the feminist agenda into the scriptures rather than being true to the scriptures. And I think that attack is one of the things that is most ugly about the use of atonement as a form of power in the church. And you're right, Nate, it has prevented so many of us, even myself for years, from not only studying, but even giving any possibility to other ways of thinking about atonement. And actually, and I'm so embarrassed to say this, writing off whole wings of the church, for instance, most of the beautiful American heritage of the black church, as being not Christ-centered or not orthodox to the gospel. Not only is that cruel and leads to a horrible, largely racist view of the church and our culture, but the result is that it completely diminished my understanding of the gospel. And so trying to get outside of that bubble, which can be really difficult, I think is one of the first ways that we actually start improving our theology. All right, so let's do kind of like a quick overview um, of some of the different motifs. Uh, We've said that moving away from penal substitutionary atonement, that's sort of a lens to view these motifs through. And we're kind of replacing that with a different lens. And the one that Mako has brought up and brought to us is kind of this medical view. So we're putting that lens on and now we're looking at these motifs. So give me like a minute or so on each of these motifs. Depending on how you, you know, kind of organize this, your list can change. I I broke it down into 10 major motifs that you see uh, in the New Testament. So the first one is one we just touched on is liberation or you say redemption or rescue. And it's actually largely what is entailed in the word salvation uh, going back to the Old Testament. And that is simply the idea that people, and it starts with the story of Israel, are enslaved and they are held captive and they need to be rescued. And so part of what Christ is doing in the cross, a large part, is rescuing people from slavery and freeing captives, releasing people from their bondage to oppressors. And so this is seen both in... Uh, in Israel's slavery to the Roman Empire, Israel's slavery to uh, Herod, who is essentially the faux Jewish king, but who is essentially a, a pawn for the Roman Empire. It's a 
rescue from actually the religious establishment itself who killed Jesus, but who Jesus says with the Pharisees and and the the priesthood essentially that they're laying on all sorts of burdens onto the people that they will do nothing to to release from them. The the religion itself had actually become an enslaving force. And then uh, you also see this kind of spiritualized language in Paul where he he talks about uh, the enemies of death, sin, and Satan as all enslaving forces or powers, kind of like capital P powers that he personifies in a sense that those forces are things that are enslaving people. Unfortunately, in the penal substitution world, all we do is we latch onto the sin piece and we say, yeah, sin is the real thing that we're enslaved to. We really need to be released from slavery to sin. And not saying that's not a thing. That's very much a thing in New Testament thinking, but it's also slavery to, to Satan and the powers of darkness, slavery to the power of death, which has a grip on all of us and very real. And this is what N.T. Wright and others want to push on. It very much has to do with slavery to the empire, slavery to the religious elite and establishment, and actually slavery to one's own kind of cultural uh, establishment. So where does black liberation theology fit into that? I'm guessing that that is under this kind of motif. Yeah, it's a a longer conversation. Uh, We should probably do a whole show on liberation theology, but we actually recently retweeted something that if you're interested, I I thought it was really helpful. Uh, It's from a group called Christianity Now, and it's a guide to James Cone. Uh, James Cone is, is thought of as the father of black liberation theology in America. And essentially, if I could try to summarize, black liberation theology or American liberation theology is focusing on the empire and and social powers in all that I just listed. It's saying socioeconomic slavery is really one of the things God wants to free us from. And it essentially, part of James Cone's staple work is to say that Jesus and through Jesus, God identifies always with the victims, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed. And so James Cone actually went as far as saying that Jesus is black, not in the sense that his skin color was black, but Jesus is always found in the powerless who are being abused by those in power and is always working for the liberation of the powerless. And so there's a really important piece here, especially when we just touched on power, that people want to say that the role of those in positions of powerlessness is just to do the Christ-like thing and continue to lay down the power that you already don't have. And James Cone was considered the father of a whole bunch of great theologians and thinkers saying, no, no, that's only a a part of the story. Uh, Jesus is actually trying to empower the powerless to actually be liberated from their oppressors. So that's a really important piece of uh, theology in general, but specifically in our context where our entire country has been established on white supremacy and racism and slavery, that we have to really grasp this bit of uh, the gospel as liberating the oppressed. Okay, next up is Ransom. And I'm really interested to hear how this is not what first comes to my head, which is we were supposed to die and Jesus died in our place. Because that's honestly, that's what I I think about. He was the ransom for like, I was supposed to die, right? Like, how else can I think yeah. about that? That's so funny, though, because like, is that, and you think about like movies where there's like a ransom, you know, like this actually might be a good place to to explain something. When we're critiquing penal substitutionary atonement, we're not critiquing either substitution or or atonement. 
we're critiquing the idea that we're supposed to interpret the way Jesus gave his life as a substitute or the way that the New Testament considers that a kind of atonement, that the way we're supposed to think about that is is in the terms of Jesus paying a penalty that God was demanding that we pay. That's the piece that we're pushing back on. So all of these, you can see elements of like, of course, God died a human death that he didn't have to die. Like that's a, a part of the substitution. There is no reason in the world to to try to remove the self-sacrificial piece of Jesus's death. To me, that's, I mean, the fact that someone, you know, it's kind of captured in the line, very few people will lay down their lives for a great person, even like a special person, or Jesus saying, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for one's friends. That idea of laying down your life for somebody else, I think is a, is a really beautiful idea. I don't want to get rid of that. But Ransom, to tell a short history, there was one theologian in church history who actually put the argument forward and got teased out a little bit that God actually paid the price to buy off Satan, essentially. So Satan's holding humanity captive. He's called the prince of this world, the the power of the air, and that ransom is the price due to retrieve someone from captivity, right? It's like if you someone's holding you hostage and they demand a ransom, I have to pay a million dollars to get my family back or something like that. So when this idea of ransom started coming up, some people took it literally for a little bit. Most people push back on that. I would too, because uh, you never see anything of like Satan actually receiving some sort of payment. It's more the idea, it's emphasizing the cost, kind of an economic transaction piece. And it's really connected to liberation. It's the idea that to liberate Israel and to liberate humanity, it cost God quite a bit. It cost him his life. All right, victory and conquering. I'm guessing that's like Christus Victor? Yeah, exactly. So if you read much on, on atonement, you've probably seen that for the first thousand years of church history, the dominant view of thinking about the cross was in terms of Christus Victor. And actually, one of the main reasons we started going through the strange stuff in Genesis and this idea that there are multiple gods and that God had actually delegated rulership of the world to these other gods is that that is one of the core worldview foundations running through the scriptures. And when you remove that whole idea, you eliminate the backbone for how Jesus brought the kingdom and won a battle and was victorious and conquered essentially over the kingdoms of this world. And so it's this idea that there's this cosmic battle that starts and it's all the kingdom language you have in the gospel. It's actually the backbone for exorcism of demons and all that is that Jesus is actually defeating the powers. And that is the is the primary, when we talked about there being a hub that holds all the things together, that is the primary hub, is that Jesus came and conquered and was exalted uh, and reigns as the conquering one. Okay, ritual purification. That seems Old Testament-y. Yeah, and this is uh, probably a show or two in itself. Another book recommendation, uh, if you guys want to do some reading, it actually won a couple of awards recently. It's by Fleming Rutledge. It's called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. It's honestly, it's like a lifetime work for her and a really great book. And uh, the reason I bring that up is I had one uh, strong pushback on this book, not necessarily with with Rutledge, but with basically the whole sort of wing of Protestant thinking. And that is that we separate the idea of sacred space and ritual purification from thinking about atonement. And so the idea of atonement stems entirely from the Levitical priestly sacrificial system, right? And so it's the idea of saying that Jesus was a, a sacrifice 
is kind of what Gerard was was focusing on. Jesus is compared to the animal sacrifices that were presented in the temple as an atoning sacrifice for Israel. And my main point to summarize, and, and we can unpack this a lot later, is that what atonement is essentially about, what it is primarily about in the Old Testament and in the Levitical system is not about sin. It is not about appeasing guilt or covering over guilt. It is about purifying the people in order to enter sacred space to be with God. And the reason that is so central, and this is where I push back on Rutledge, is she doesn't think it plays much of a role in the New Testament. I think it's absolutely central is that the whole idea is Jesus is the new temple. And then when Jesus goes, we are the new temple who actually live in the personal presence of God through the Holy Spirit. Our sins don't just have to be dealt with. We actually have to be ritually purified to participate in that contact. And that's just a part of Old Testament biblical thinking that is really foreign to Protestant theology, but I think it's central. There's an amazing Tim Mackey sermon on that topic, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Next up, restitution, healing, removal, and forgiveness of sin. Yeah, so kind of the reason I frame it this way is sin's a big deal. It's it's a very large part of how the New Testament is thinking about what was accomplished in the cross. But we have reduced that to thinking about the guilt of sin and forgiveness of sin. And specifically, forgiveness is really weak here. It basically, as I said before, it's impunity or acquittal. It just means we get off the hook for it. That ignores all of the language, both Old Testament and New, that sin's actually being removed, not just like forgotten or or ignored. It's actually being removed. A change is actually being accomplished. This removal actually is a kind of healing. We ignore the fact that Isaiah 53 is one of the most predominant places for people to go to defend penal substitution. We ignore the fact that Isaiah 53 frames the entire substitutionary act of the servant as something that will heal the people. And uh, and it also ignores the role of restitution and reparations in dealing with sin. We talked about Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, that part of what salvation means is that they actually make right and restore to the victims what they had taken from them. And so in the way that the, the cross deals with sin, it is not just granting a blind forgiveness. It's actually enacting restitution, as why Jesus calls salvation when Zacchaeus is willing to restore to the people he's harmed. And, and it acts, actually enacts healing by the removal of sin. And that's why I so strongly push back on the idea, if we just think of the atonement as something where God ignores the sin that still exists, it's, it's completely distorting the New Testament idea that we're actually healed from our addiction to sin and the power it has over us. Next up is example. And I'm guessing that's like we're supposed to follow and do what Jesus did. Yeah, it's the idea that Jesus actually shows us what it looks like when someone lives a beautifully, perfectly human life. And so, you know, when we talked about the story about power, that's an essential piece is that for Jesus to lay down power and be willing to suffer the consequences for it in an act of justice and only after that be restored and vindicated and exalted, that that's an example of how we are to live. I actually didn't realize how controversial people in kind of the Reformed world thought this was until I went to seminary. And I realized that so much of what people mean when they say they're Christ-centered or gospel-centered is that you're supposed to eliminate 
all aspects of imitating the example of Jesus from your view of atonement because it sounds too works righteousy. That is completely ignoring so much of the New Testament, talking about what a large part of what Jesus does is he shows us what we should be living like. Okay, number seven, representation, recapitulation, and theosis. I only know what one of those words means. Theosis? (laughs) (laughs) I can guess what theosis means. I know what representation means, and recapitulation is just kind of fun to say. (laughs) Okay, so I said before, Christus Victor was the dominant view of the early church. Uh, This is the partner to that view. Athanasius, Irenaeus, all of the early church fathers before you get to Augustine. History review here. We talked about this with Mako. Augustine church father in the fifth century ever since he wrote a whole bunch of stuff it's been hard to get free of some of his ideas what mako's been doing a lot of work on is going back to the fathers before him irenaeus athanasius those in the third and fourth centuries and trying to read what was the church thinking before augustine's influence and largely that is christus victor and this idea of, of representation or recapitulation and the, the theosis piece is a part of it. So, so just briefly, it's the idea that Jesus is the new Adam and he's the new Israel. He's depicted this way both in the Gospels and in the epistles, meaning he is the new representation of humanity. So if Adam is the figural representation who, and Paul talks about this in Romans, through Adam came death to all mankind, through Christ life resurrection comes to all mankind. And so he is essentially the new figural representative, both of Israel and the people. Recapitulation means that he went and he relived Israel's story. So he goes to the wilderness the way Israel was in the wilderness, and he does what Israel was supposed to do, but he does it himself. The way that Israel was supposed to serve the world, the way that Israel's king was supposed to serve Israel, Jesus fulfills all of that kind of representational role. And, and part of what that means, and this is really huge here, is solidarity. What Jesus does is he enacts a kind of cosmic solidarity between God and mankind. The way Hebrews says this is Jesus can fully empathize with our suffering now because he has gone through all of our suffering. And the way Athanasius puts it is that because God became human— humans can now become like God in the sense that theosis is the Greek word. This is a bigger idea in Greek orthodoxy. It just talks about the the transformation or glorification, not where we become God, but we enter into a kind of cosmic peace with God. And that can only be enacted by, essentially, this is as focused as much on the incarnation as it is the crucifixion. It's focusing on the idea that if Jesus didn't actually come and live a truly human life, then we were missing something in our ability to relate perfectly to God. Okay, so healing, transformation, and new creation, number eight. Yeah, so this is largely what Mako was getting at when he called it medical atonement. And that is the the primary problem is plague, sickness, death, and we need to be healed of that plague. And because that plague is something that runs through us and in us, our healing means that we need to be transformed. Remember, he touched on uh, circumcision as as a, a metaphor to God doing surgery to actually transform us, that idea of circumcising your hearts. And so what Jesus accomplishes by overcoming sin, Paul talks about this, and he overcame sin in his own body so that our lives were essentially crucified with his so that we can be raised with him 
Uh, it's this in Christ thing, both in uh, the representation and this new creation idea. Uh, in Christ, the uh, participation and union with Christ is the hub of all of this. The, he's actually working to transform us, and that is creating the whole new thing that the Old Testament had been looking forward to forever, which is this new people uh, who's now is newly empowered by the Spirit, which has to be incorporated into this whole conversation of atonement, that through resurrection and the empowerment of the Spirit, we were actually able to be the kind of people that God had been trying to help us to be all along. Okay, reconciliation, number nine. Yeah, it's kind of a two-way street. It's big on Paul. If you remember in Second Corinthians, he talks about uh, we've been reconciled, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of Christ. It's a two-way street in that the first piece is that we are being reconciled to God. In the penal substitutionary view, this is because God didn't want to be around us, and now that he pretends we're like Jesus, now he wants to be around us. That's not, I don't believe, the biblical view of reconciliation. Rather, it's we didn't want to be around God, and now we've come to understand the good news of how God is just and righteous and loves us. And so we actually are reconciled to God. So so Paul actually sends in the exhortation, be reconciled to God. And that's the other piece that we miss is Paul spends actually a ton of time talking about this. The result of God reconciling not just Jews, but Gentiles, the whole rest of the world, to himself is enacting a social reconciliation where we then have to be reconciled to one another or get to be reconciled to one another. It's actually enacting a worldwide universal social reconciliation that has eliminated the divide between Jew and non-Jew. And this is the fulfillment of of all that language around lion dwelling with the lamb and uh, the metaphor of all the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship God together. Basically, it's this reunification, undoing what happened at Babel to delegate all the nations out to other gods. Those nations are coming back to one God, but the result of that is that we all get reconciled to one another. Okay, last one. Y'all made it. Revelation. There have been times where revelation has been pinned against penal substitution in a way that I think has skewed what this means here. But this is the idea that when God takes on flesh, becomes human in Jesus, and then dies, allows himself to be tortured, crucified, humiliated, killed— that that reveals something about God that has always been true. So this is in direct contradiction to the idea that penal substitution changes God and shows that what was true, God didn't want to be around us, wanted to kill us, is now no longer true. Rather, it reveals that God has always loved us, that God has always been just, that God has always been trying to heal and transform the world, that God has always been trying to enact a new creation. He's now done it, and the way that we've come to realize that is in the person of Christ. So one of my favorite ways the Bible shows this is that one of the first people to recognize in some of the Gospels the significance of the cross is the Roman soldier, the centurion, who's watching Jesus die, who participated, it implies, in all of the torture and humiliation as part of his job. He watches the way Jesus dies, and he says, surely you are a son of God, or surely you are a righteous man. And it's that idea that in watching the way Jesus lays down all of his power and dies in such a beautifully self-sacrificial way, it reveals to the world how beautifully self-sacrificial and loving God has always been. That's really helpful to just see them all kind of laid out one after another like that. And sort of blows my mind to think about um, just the different ways to actually think about the cross. Thanks for doing that. We're going to keep talking about atonement as we go forward. Thanks for being along on this journey with us. 
We do want to hear if you have any questions about any of this. We kind of just want to hear how it's hitting you. Um, so feel free to reach out to us, contact at almostheretical.com. We'll see you next week as we continue to talk about atonement. See ya. If you want to know what it sounds like to edit the podcast, here's a sample of that. You know, you know, you know, you know, yeah. You know, you know, you know, you know. Yeah. Uh, kind of the, uh, 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 kind of the, uh, 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 uh.